It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Hello and welcome to this week's Football Digest. Um, Today, I'm joined by Matt Dunn, football writer for the Daily Express, and Neil McClemmon, the sports writer for the Daily Mirror. I'm Andy Dunn, chief sports writer for the Daily Mirror. And as usual, plenty on the agenda uh, this week, starting with all things Manchester United after their painful exit from the Champions League. We'll also be discussing the World Cup qualifying draw as England meets some familiar foes. The scenes in Paris, remarkable scenes as PSG and Istanbul walked off the pitch. Chris Wilder's struggles at Sheffield United continue. We'll be looking at that. And as the return of fans um, and the Premier League title race, can Jose and Frank maintain the challenge? Can Saints stay up there? And what's going on in Spain? And we'll also be asking for your player of 2020. First, though, where else to start, as so often, than our Old Trafford? Um, just another quiet week, really. Um, comeback win at West Ham. I was there for that one. Um, Mina Raiola shoots his mouth off, as usual. Pogba keeps his shut. United blow their Champions League campaign with that defeat at RB Leipzig. De Gea gets um, a coating from some critics. Their ex-players close ranks around the manager. Um, all standard stuff, really, for a few days at Manchester United. You know, John Cross is normally here. Um, he's on holiday this week. But one of his... The bees in his bonnet, Matt, is how he perceives it as pundits, um, ex-Manchester United players, close ranks around Ole Gunnar Solskjaer after um, whatever setback has befallen Manchester United. Do you think this is the case this week? Is Solskjaer um, getting the attention and the criticism he deserves after that defeat in Leipzig? Um, yeah, uh, he, well, he's not getting it from those particular characters anyway. He's getting it from all other quarters. Um I think what's missing from Manchester United at the moment is clear leadership uh, at all levels, but particularly from the manager. Um, I was thinking about what it is about Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, that he can get these results. He sort of cheerily goes about his way, pulls a few master strokes, gets a great result in Paris, but then can sort of stink the place out uh, in other performances and, I, and, and constantly have this ruck with Pogba. And it's leadership. He doesn't strike me as a man who who you'd want to go and play for necessarily. On, on our level, he wouldn't want me necessarily, although the, the old left foot's still available should he need it. But um, but no, but we all meet managers and we spend time with managers. Uh, and as a general rule, they're quite impressive characters, I've always found, certainly the good ones. And you kind of spend time in their company and you think, no, I get why dressing rooms want to play for you, because it is difficult being a leader of men it is a particular quality and that's what I said I thought is the vacuum actually I don't know if Solskjaer he's a nice bloke he's a smashing fella and so obviously got a load of mates in that dressing room of his when he used to play because they are sticking up for him but I'm not sure he's he's a leader I mean people talk about all the media love for Pochettino the reason for that I think a lot of is because um people are quite inspired by him people around him he has this aura about him that that actually you do feel like you want to do a, a bit better for him or, or you know be on his side basically and, and i just don't get any of that in the, my limited dealings with with Ole Gunnar Solskjaer nice bloke though he is you see the thing i would say about that matt is that surely we hear a lot about this leadership but leadership comes in all guises surely doesn't it mm. I mean, without a doubt you know i've told this story before when uh, we had a social event towards the end of last year, and and and, and I sat and with Jurgen Klopp, you know, by the end of by the end of the second course, you know, I, I would have run through brick walls for Jurgen Klopp. He was that inspirational. You know, he, he, you could understand fully why players would buy into him. Having said that, though, Matt, what I'm trying to say is, it comes in different guys. Having said that, look at look at say Bob Paisley. You know, oh. I mean, no manager has a record like Bob Paisley's. Yeah, you know, he sat in the stands for half the time. You, know, he, he, you wouldn't have got Bob Paisley out on the pitch, beating his chest and punching to the cop. You know, it was, it was a quiet handshaking off he goes, a quietly spoken guy. So surely it comes in all... all, all he, he used authority, didn't he, yeah. Bob? Yeah. I mean, I was never... I never met the man. But, yeah. but from what I gather, but, you know, if yeah. he had a quiet word and said, that's what you need to do, 
people yeah. listened to him because he had that authority. I don't think Ole Gunnar Solskjaer's got that authority. There's yeah. other people. George Graham, I've always been impressed with um, in dealings with him. Uh, and he's never so quietly spoken sometimes, but he just said, says a little quiet word. And you think, actually, I'm finding, I'm listening to this more than, than, than thinking about it more than I probably should be. Uh, and there's certain characters who have that quality about them. And, and I don't think Solskjaer is one of them. Neil, I, I, I would just say, I guess, you know, those managers of yesteryear that we're talking about, a George Graham or, or even a Bob Paisley, I guess they didn't have to deal with characters such as Mina Raiola um, talking about their, you know, and superstar agents talking about their clients. How, I mean, how helpful or unhelpful do you think that the Raiola's latest intervention has been? Yeah, I mean, I just think it's it's come to the point now where Mina Raiola just wants to get Pogba out. And I think that the, the timing of that latest and um, the interview in Tutor Sport the other day was, you know, obviously totally unhelpful. And I think it's just an issue that should have been addressed before. I mean, Pogba, you know, Pogba is a World Cup winner and that his displays with France bear no resemblance to what he does with Manchester United. And, you know, this is an issue that should have been addressed along with, you know, the Jordan Sancho, the, all the other things. I mean, there, there are obvious issues, as Matt said, from the top to the bottom of the club. And, you know, the only issue, the only issue clearly isn't with Solskjaer. What struck me over the last week or two is the, reaction, is the, is the acceptance that Manchester United from fans and ex-players are, are the slipping in the standards. It's almost like they've become the new Arsenal in the sense that Manchester United used to be competing for the league title in the Europe Champions League every year. And now the sort of, well, top four and a cup is going to be OK. I mean, it's really, I mean, lots of great coverage this morning that the United... Uh, we stand fans in Jamie Reedman in the mirror today saying, oh, we've got a nice team to play football. They obviously like Solskjaer. And you know, it, a lot mm. of the fans seem to be happy with that. I understand it's divided. Um, but, you know, it was the same with Arsenal. They, 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 they went from being title challenged to, be, to just trying to qualify for the Champions League and winning cups. And, you know, once you slip, slip down there and, and, and look where Arsenal are now. Mm. I, just, I just want to quickly address a couple of questions that have just come through. Um, one from Eddie. I mean, you suggesting actually that Solskjaer might have picked the wrong lineup against RB Leipzig. Um, I, I don't know what, what you think of, of. Obviously, he went without Pogba, um, without Van der Beek. Um, I mean, do, do you actually think tactically he got that one right, Matt? On uh, well, or clearly he didn't because they got beat. Well, no, but, but, but I mean, tactically, do you think that was a glaring error? It's hard to say a glaring error because, and I, I always feel. I mean, these guys live the tactics. They've got teams that live the tactics. There's always a reason for it. And hindsight's a wonderful thing to to criticise people with. He clearly has a plan. And tactically, I don't think he... He's not someone who pulls off masterstrokes necessarily. Um, although that said, you know, getting a result in Paris, again, coming back to that, you need to set up in a certain way. And he, and he did found that way. Um, but... I don't think that's where the issue is for him. I mean, it's easy to criticise tactics after individual games, but whatever tactics you play, if the players aren't playing for you and going the extra mile because they're not inspired by you, then you're not going to get the result that you expect. Another question from William, which is an interesting question, actually, in the subtext of it. He says, well, what will be the next stop for Solskjaer? And I guess that goes a little bit back to what you're saying, Matt, is that you know, if someone gets sacked from Man United, you normally think, you know, where will they go? Where will, you know, Jose Mourinho was never going to go away, was he? I guess Solskjaer is the type, they've got a manager who isn't of that ilk, is he? He's not part of the, the coaching Galacticos. And we're not going to say, OK, if they get rid of Solskjaer, he's going to reappear at Real Madrid in a year's time. Mm. But having said that, you've always, you don't forget the chairman who wants yeah. to point and a former Manchester United manager. There's always ambitious chairmans at clubs that, that want that sort of CV on their desk. Um, so he'll, he'll appear somewhere and have to do what perhaps someone like David Moyes has done, which is rebuild his reputation via a number of clubs if he really is as good good enough to have been given that Manchester United job in the first place. Neil, I want to move on to the Manchester derby um, this Saturday. I mean, clearly, you know, you can solve a lot of, cure a lot of ills with, um, with the win there for United. They'd they're only five points off the top, aren't they, with a the game in hand? You know, City are up there as well. I, I just quickly, we'll come on to City in a moment, but just to finish off on United, I think there are a couple of issues that Solskjaer... Listen, I think Solskjaer is staying in the job, so I think, in a way, debates about his future are, are interesting, but I think that Edward, Ed Woodward is very, very set in keeping faith with Solskjaer, unless everyone went really disastrous. And then and in the, the semi-final, the League Cup, and they're high up in the league. So he's got... Decision to make Solskjaer in the meantime. A, does he 
bring Pogba into the starting lineup, considering they were probably better with him in it at West Ham and better in it for, for the half hour he was there on Tuesday night, does he bring Pogba back and maybe swallow a bit of pride? And David De Gea came in for some really, really fierce criticism um, from Paul Scholes in particular. Does he stick with David De Gea and does he bring Paul Pogba back? They're my selection questions for this Saturday. Neil? Yeah, I would. I would play him. Uh, just because, he's, he, as we saw at West Ham and saw at Leipzig the other day, he gives you something extra. So, I, I, But as we've mentioned earlier, it's a really difficult position to be in. But I, I think that Pogba gives something to that United midfield. Going forward, I mean, they've got a lot going on. That It's just going back to what we were saying earlier. There are a lot of good players there at Manchester yeah. United. And often going forward, and their away record is superb. They do a lot of things right. There's just small margins that, that, that aren't getting right. And whether you're seeing it's the preparation or certainly the going out on the pitch and always conceding the first goal. You know, there are things that, that are going wrong that shouldn't be going wrong at a top, at a top club. And um, no, I, I agree. I think they'll they'll give him more time. I think uh, Pochettino is the the, ma- the man in waiting, if you like. That everyone is, assumes that um, he's going to t- to take over. Um, it would be very interesting if Zidane had lost last night and Real Madrid were going to move to Pochettino, and um, it may well put Manchester United into <laughs> to force them into a decision. But um, no, I think you play you play Pogba, you play your best team. Yeah, no, I, I want Matt. Maybe you on this. I, this I have a view. I think that it is time for Solskjaer to make a very, very big decision um, on the goalkeeping front. Um, do you think there's a decision to be made there, or do you just stick with David De Gea and ignore Dean Henderson, who thinks he should be the number one there? We know that. Haven't talked with him in an England context. I was at Southampton uh, when I thought the decision had been made for him because De Gea looked in a bad way when he got injured there. Um, uh, but it was incredible when he came on. In those empty, the, the last days of the empty stadium, you could hear how loud Henderson is, how confident he yeah. is, how determined he is to lay down a marker. And in that game, um, they were so much better in the second half. Uh, defensively, they didn't have much defending to do, but more organised. And that's got to have something to do with having a big fella behind them telling them all what to do. Uh, and that, I think, is key. And I think Maguire re- responds well to that. Uh, and anyone around him responds well to that. Henderson's not frightened of taking on that shirt, and we know that from talking to him. But he's also, whenever he's got the, the brief times he's got to wear it, he's shown that he can do it. And, and I just think you need a stronger character behind that particular defence um, because there are there is flakiness in it, and it just needs someone to keep them on their toes, keep them all concentrating and working as a unit. Mm. Uh, and I don't think they have puts that out for him he's busy being a great goalkeeper but I don't think he's a great marshaller of his defence necessarily yeah, yeah I, I think he's going through not, not a great time I think it, it, it's a good point you make the the way that Maguire looked at David De Gea after that goal from Justin Clive the other day sort of summed everything up they seem to enjoy playing with Henderson it's tough it'll be tough on De Gea but you know if Solskjaer wants to show basically that he's got the, the spine for this job it's the type of decision I think he's got to make Quickly on to Manchester City. I was there last night at the Etihad and you think to yourself, you know what, they've won this group, obviously already before last night's game against Marseille. Maybe they'll play the reserves, you know. And they sort of did, but they haven't got any reserves, have they? You know, it was, it was a remarkable side that he put out. They won 3-0, Aguero came back on. He's got pretty much now, uh, as far as I can see, this off the top of my head, pretty much a fully fit squad to choose from. Um, um, Pep Guardiola, you know, Fernandino was playing last night. Aguero now has come back. By the way, he didn't look fully fit, anything anything but. So he'll probably be on the bench. So where do you see City at the moment? Maybe, you know, reports of their demise are exaggerated, Matt? I mean, yeah, demise is far too strong a word for it. Mm. The only thing is whether they've taken on too much damage already um, to, to mount a, a Premier League challenge again. And, yeah, I don't think Liverpool are going to be rolling out results like they have done the last two, two seasons. But, you know, there is quite a lot of gap there already. Uh, it just it just seems in points it's probably not as big a, as it just seems, but but that Manchester City invincibility has been shredded by it too too often this season. I think uh, and teams go out there thinking they've perhaps got a bit more of a chance than they would have done, you know, the last two mm. seasons. So yeah, they've lost that that aura has taken a denting perhaps, and and actually the the practicality is they've still got a lot of the same players. And, and they've still got plenty of weapons to hurt teams with. But but perhaps they're not quite 
that 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 little something extra has, has perhaps gone missing. Neil, if I could, I, I was going to bring this in later, but I think while we're on the subject now, we'll we'll, we'll bring this in. Um, we're talking about uh, Man City there, uh, and and Matt mentioned Liverpool. I don't think Liverpool will be slipping up, um, you know, dramatically at the at the higher end of the league. I'm interested now. I mean, you guys see more than I do of them. Can Spurs and Chelsea stay in the mix? It looks great now. I mean, I was talking to a pal of mine the other day, you know, just saying, wouldn't it, have been, wouldn't it be absolutely fantastic if we can have a a three-horse race, a four-horse race, a five-horse race even? And looking at Spurs and Chelsea, I haven't seen a massive amount of them live, but it looks to me like they could maintain that challenge. Is that is that what you... Do you get the impression, Neil, that, that, that Jose and Frank... We are there for are there for the duration this season. Yeah, I think I think they will. I still think if you had to ask me who's going to finish top two this season, I'd still say Liverpool and Man City. But I still mm. think that it's been really good for the Premier League. That a the way Chelsea obviously lavished a lot of money and and, and they've bought so many players that even they've, they've had the chance to bring them in. Even not all of them have worked. They've still got new players, and it's obviously worked with getting Giroud. And bringing him and take his opportunities. I think Chelsea, Chelsea are just a really fascinating story. What what they're going to be doing the rest of the season, mm. and and Spurs with Mourinho. I mean, it, it, it's just been great. And uh, you know, it's we talked, we mentioned Pochettino earlier on, and it, it's, I think it's really interesting what Jose's doing at Spurs now. How it affects Pochettino's legacy at Tottenham? Because mm. yeah. especially if especially if Jose wins thing this season. And goes close. You know, what what does it say about what Pochettino had with with the same players? But I just think, and, and I think, full admiration to Mourinho that he went to Spurs, and it could have gone either way like a year ago. And it was a team that was starting to to dip. And he's really shown that there's more than one way to a football match. And 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 it's still true that you know the Klopp and the the Guardiola and the Nagelsmann style. That, that the way that Mourinho does it is 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 it's it's really interesting to make to make like the way to, to look at football like that and he's just, they, i think they bought really sensibly in the summer the experience of the premier league and it's, it's actually they haven't needed bail to, to, to get this far so the, the other reason as well but they they're spending 250 300 grand on a week of, on a player that you know with the way kane and son are playing they don't yeah. actually need him it, it, it was it was funny. I was covering the Chelsea um, Spurs game at Stamford Bridge, and and as you guys know, you know it's not a biggie press box. Um, the Chelsea one, so they they put you down in the stand. You're fairly close to the, the the sort of cinder back of the side of the pitch. And Gareth Bale was warming up like for nearly all of the second half of that nil nil um, draw, um, along with Ben Davis, his compatriot and uh, and fellow uh, it's fellow Welshman. And it was funny because. Um, with 10 minutes to go, you know, Jose sort of um, calls them over and, and you think to yourself, right, 10 minutes ago, it's nil-nil. Is he going to put Gareth Bale on, the, the guy who, who we know has a game-changing moment um, in his world-class boots, or is he going to bring the fullback on? Well, I mean, obviously, there's no prize for guessing. <laughs> on came Ben Davis and Gareth Bale didn't get a kick again. But he's getting away with, I thought Jose, he, he, you know, he, he's being... Indulge in a way. There's no questions being asked about Gareth Bale. You know, if Gareth Bale wasn't playing for Real Madrid like this, we'd all be saying, "What the hell's going on with Gareth Bale not getting the game for Real Madrid? He's not getting the game for Spurs." But that's because Jose's found this way, I guess. And Matt, it, 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 he's found a way that is right up his street. You know, you know, they, you know, they're not conceding goals. I mean, almost if you you could have almost written the script for that Arsenal game. You know, yeah. and and to score that second goal as they did, for example. You know, when Arsenal are in their box, I mean, it's just this is just. I mean, th- th- these are things. Josie must be having, like, you know, enjoyable sleepless nights thinking ab- about, you know, 30 possession and we've won. 30 possession and we haven't lost to to to, um, to Chelsea. 30% possession and we've beaten Man City. This is his, this is, this is peak Josie, isn't he? He's back. He's back to his oh, very best, it. isn't he? He's absolutely loving I'm it. I'm loving he's, it, yes. He's got his mojo back. You know, he's refusing to say what Harry Kane's injury is the other week just because he didn't have to say. Um, just because he didn't mis- have an injury, yeah. I think. <laughs> well, who knows? Yeah. yeah. But that little bit of devilment, that mischievousness that I'm in control, I don't have to tell you guys anything, you know, but, but in a kind of a playful way rather than a sinister way. Um, he's right on top of his game at the moment. That uh, it was amazing at, at that Arsenal. So you mentioned that second goal. You know, Arsenal are battering them in terms of, of, of possession and territory, and then all of a sudden you look up. You know, poor Thomas Party's injured, so that kind of affected it a little bit. But suddenly you look up, and there are four Spurs 
attackers bearing down on two Arsenal defenders. And you think, how did this happen? Yes. And it happened because that's how Jose designs it to happen. Yes. He sits there, hoodwinks teams into thinking they can come at you, and then bang, hits you on the counter, 1-0, 2-0, the game's over, and then they're, they're now more resilient defending um, yes. than they, they have been for a long time. And part of the key to that is because there aren't any weak areas because, like you said, with the summer signings, he's now got two good, strong players in every position. Mm. So, you know, how they'll do without Kane and Son is anyone's guess because that just transcends everything. Mm. But that aside, he they can muddle through. Uh, and that's what Pochettino's side ultimately lacks the yeah. ability to do. When, 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 those, when Kane was injured, for, excuse me, um, he lost the goals. And for as much mm. as it's hardly to dare is to do with Mourinho, they're not rattling in a lot of goals yes. despite yeah. the fact that they're not seeing the ball very much. Yes, interesting. And, and and Neil Lampard, you know, has a squad. Again, it struck me when I was at that Chelsea Spurs game. I looked at their bench and I saw who was on it, the likes of Hivert, and I saw who was on it, the likes of Callum Hudson Odoi. And I thought he has got he has got a really deep squad, hasn't he? That squad should be one that can that can challenge right to the end of the season on, on a few fronts. Well, that's right. I mean, they've had the advantage. Kai Havertz, he's had you know the illness, etc. as well, but you spend £70 million on a player. Really, he scored a hat-trick in the Carling Cup, whatever. But, you know, we haven't really noticed. He hasn't really made that big an impact. It doesn't really matter because they've got so many other players who have. And I think during the course of the season, so Champions League and, and the Cup competitions, I think really Chelsea are going to be serious, mm. serious contenders. And I think Lampard, the way he handled it and handled expectation, and no, I think he's been very impressive. Mm. Let, let, let's actually, let's just wrap up the whole Premier League while we're while we're at it um, and looking ahead to this weekend. Good win for Southampton um, the other night, albeit in slightly controversial circumstances. Um, can they stay up there? And also, while we're at it, down at the bottom, Sheffield United. Do we see um, a way out of this for Chris Wilder? The Saints first, Neil. How, how, how about Southampton? And what do you make of the job that Ralph's doing there? Well, I mean, uh, Southampton are actually terrific to watch because they, they play this high pressing style and it's quite high risk and they'll often push the centre-backs to having two-on-two and bomb the full-backs forward. And, you know, they, they can get hurt. And we, we saw the, the Leicester game last season and I saw them home to Spurs earlier this season where Kane and Son worked them out and just, you know, sprang the press every time and they scored five goals. And United, again, the top teams are still a little bit way to go. But they've got this style of playing and they've got Ings, who is he can come back from injury, he scores again. He's a striker that's that red hot, does, does a lot of things. So I really do think that they they can be, you know, top, top, we're talking seven, mm. eight, you know, that sort of fringe of the Europa League now. And uh, yeah, it's like a little bit like Leeds in the sense that you never know what you when you see them, but you, it's, it's, it's going to be entertaining. You're going to see goals. Yeah. Matt, um, as I say, I mean, the, the, obviously, um, teams down at the bottom, it's a bit early yet to start panicking, I, I think, personally. I mean, probably teams do panic um, at this stage, but I don't think they should. But Chris Wilder, under under some pressure at Sheffield United. Uh, pressure, hopefully not. Yeah, pressure to get no. points rather than pressure for yeah. his job, one would hope. Um, but that's the trouble with momentum, belief in football, is, is what it gets battered during a season, even last season. You know, they did lose you know, a lot of games when they've been used to winning them in the championship. Uh, and that belief that can bring clubs up into the top flight and see them run away at the start of a season, like, for instance, teams like Blackpool did, um, you know, however many years ago that was. You know, teams do come flying up from the championship, come out of the blocks quickly, um, and then gradually it chips away. And I think you underestimate, it's easy to underestimate how much damage those that, that run-in can be having. Uh, and when you arrive again at the start of the season, you're not the new boys anymore. You haven't got that going for you. No one's talking about you particularly because there's other new boys to talk about. Um, it's not great whenever you get a single a point. You know, it's all oh, suddenly it's two points dropped uh, and the whole mood changes. And, you know, Chris Wilder's achievement in doing what he did last year with Sheffield United was remarkable. And the reason it was remarkable is because he did very well with a limited bunch of players. Yeah. Uh, and they're not particularly that much better this year. It's just that that magical ingredient uh, has gone and actually you're faced with the reality. The same reality, unfortunately, that Fulham to a large extent have, which is that their squad actually isn't good enough for the Premier League. 
Yeah, yeah, I, mean, I, 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 think, I agree. I, I, I hope he's. Sorry, I'll just. I hope he's not under pressure. I think. I think you've lost a, an inspirational goalkeeper um, for a start off. You know, I'm not saying the, the current goalkeeper has been responsible um, for any of the defeats, but I just think it, it, it all adds up. Sorry, Neil, you, you were saying about Chris Wilder? No, just going to on, on Sheffield United. I mean, at the beginning of each season, we're always asked to name our predictions for who's going to win the title, Champions League, and who's going to go down. And you and usually there is usually the, the basis that you go the, the, the three promoted teams will, will struggle and I think that's more or less mm. usually the case And but there's often one team that sort of struggles that you don't see and United Sheffield United have been that case and it's actually maybe not as good it's the worst start in Premier League history they've made and it really is quite a, a, you know yes. it's all bad and you you just think that well in a way that they're going to do what Norwich uh, Norwich, look, look, they stuck with Farker through thick and thin last season and kept playing. It was a slightly different model, etc. But they're now back at the top of the, uh, yes. the championship and, and coming back. So that maybe that's the decision Sheffield United are going to have to make over the next couple of months because uh, if it carries on like this. Yeah, I, 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 again, I think that's a great point, Neil. You, you know, Norwich made that decision with Daniel Farker and now after last night's results, they are they are top of the championship. And don't forget... You know, in a very similar vein, um, Burnley made the same decision when when they were relegated, and Sean Dyche was kept um, yeah. kept in, in in the hot seat, and they came straight back up quite comfortably. So I, I would hope that even if it gets to that stage, that's what they'll do with Chris Wilder, assuming he wants to stay in that. Let's stay with the Premier League because Mirror.co.uk and all our local, regional, and national digital colleagues have um, have come together to run a Fans Footballer of the Year for 2020. It's that awards time of the year, of course. Um, it's a public vote online and, and the result will be revealed on December the 21st. Now, the shortlist, and, and we might think there's one or two maybe absentees from this, but let's go with this, that the shortlisted seven are Kevin De Bruyne, Virgil van Dijk, Jordan Henderson, Jack Grealish, Marcus Rashford, Sadio Mane and Mohamed Salah. So I'll just ask you briefly, chaps, your thoughts. Who is your player? Just based purely on, on, on what he has produced on the field of play this calendar year, 2020. Your best player. I'll, I'll, I'll tell you. I'll 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 start. Um, I, I, have, I have to say, I would have to say that the player I've enjoyed watching most is Kevin De Bruyne. You know, I mean, he, he doesn't have the 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 the, um, the medals to show that the, the others do. But I just I, I would the guy I would pay to watch money out of those seven. Pay the most money. I'd pay to watch them all. But the guy I pay most to watch is Kevin De Bruyne. Matt, I'm just gutted for Jack Grealish that he didn't get your vote. <laughs> he must have, if he watches this program ever, then then he must be gutted. He must have been a shooing out of thought. <laughs> I've never forgiven him for his COVID stuff. No, I'm only kidding. <laughs> I, just, I, I don't think for the first half of the year. I, I'm going on the whole year. Um, well, uh, uh, to be honest, in, if on the whole year, it's difficult because I don't. I mean, mm. we talked about omissions. I, I don't think Harry Kane's had a bad twelve months. Well, nine months. He was injured he was for a bit, quite a bit of it, wasn't he? Yeah. So everyone else yeah. sat out for a bit. We didn't play football for quite a bit. So, you know, true, we've true, got jumps true. out of the year anyway. Uh, it is a weird season. Um, I, I feel a little bit sorry for mirror voters that we're having the same asterisk, uh, mirror readers that, that we're, we're having the same asterisk on Marcus Rashford. Because if anyone's had an exceptional season and he's not yeah. done too badly on the pitch, you know, true. against the backdrop of that, I don't mind him getting as many accolades and whatever that, that, that comes his way. And then, I think the, the BBC situation is a bit of a farce, to be honest. And, and I'm pleased to at least see him on the shortlist so the Mirror readers can make up their own mind. But I'm with you. The, the best player in the Premier League as a footballer uh, and has been for, for three or four years is Kevin De Bruyne. Um, the, the the man I picked out as the player, young player to watch with Chelsea in the year that Mourinho played him once and then sold him mm. on. But, uh, mm. but that was based on a pre-season out in the Far East when he was incredible and... I've I've always wondered what went wrong there, and it's about the only time I've ever got got anything vaguely right on football, and uh, Mourinho <laughs> didn't. But uh, but yeah, no, he, he's always been he's he's an incredible player. Neil, who would you pick out amongst those seven of from those seven? Well, first of all, I I totally agree with Matt on Marcus Rashford that he's the the outstanding personality player in the Premier League for what he's done off the pitch. Personally, I'd vote for Mo Salah just because yeah. what he what he brings. Liverpool, what Liverpool Liverpool have achieved this year. And the way they did it, certainly before the pandemic, the way they played, and I think he's still part of it. And I just think he's a superb one. I love watching him. Yeah, no, 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 I agree. It's interesting. Is there anyone so far? Okay, we've only had ten games. Is there anyone so far 
who has emerged this season, I'm trying to think, to, who, who, will, who will go into the voting, you know, when, we, when, when it comes around again at the end of the season. I'm just trying to think, it is, in general, the sort of, it has to be the sort of usual suspects, doesn't it, from, from each club, really, who are, who are stepping up to the plate. Harry Kane in particular, you, you touched on Harry Kane there, um, uh, Matt, and, you know, a lot's been said about him this season. I mean, just how is he developing? You know, I, was, I was very interested... Um, to hear Gareth Southgate's words about him as a leader um, um, when he was doing... We'll come on to that, that World Cup draw in, in a moment. But I was very interested in Gareth Southgate's words about him because how he how he developed into a magnificent leader and how every young player was inspired by him, every young player looked up to him, how the Kane had natural captaincy abilities but had developed even more. And it sounded to me like Southgate was actually even a little bit surprised at how Kane had... Um, taken on the mantle of England captain, and as you remember, Matt, in the in the early days um, of Southgate's um, um, tenure as permanent England manager, the captain's armband was was shifted around various people. You, you know, if you had an England shirt on, you had a chance of getting the armband at some stage. And and there was a time I remember, you, you know, when we used to have those those breakaway huddles with Gareth after conferences. You know, and you'd look at him and you'd think. He might. This is a guy who actually might not have a permanent England captain. It took him mm. a long time, if you remember, before he, he actually almost, did he? No, and, and you got that impression, and because he didn't buy into the cult of the England captain, mm. which we saw in in particular personified in two people, in David Beckham and Wayne Rooney. Mm. You know, they made the England captaincy an industry, you know, a celebrity industry, for want of a better phrase. Mm. And I just think that's everything that was. You know, was was the antithesis of what Southgate wanted as as an ethos in his team. He didn't want that individual thing, which is why he's reluctant. And it just struck me that we haven't gone back on that. And and in the end, he thought, well, I better have one. You know, going to the, to a World Cup, I better have one. And he, he's chose Kane, and I think he's been surprised. And I just want to know, as a as a player and as a leader, but, but also technically about his game now. I mean, how do you see what how he's developed even more this season, Matt? Oh, it's, it's just been re remarkable. Um, he used to do a bit of... Uh, it's funny because I was looking back at a match report having written Spurs off after the mm. opening game of the season where when Everton beat them comfortably. Um, I was looking back at my match report and I made a note there that Kane just was, on the, in that particular game, was, was leading the line uh, and looked distanced. Uh, and I, I sort of posed the question, what happened to the Harry Kane that under Pochettino did occasionally used to drop a bit, bit deeper, set a move going, go into the box, finish it off. Well, Mourinho's taken that, you know, to an extra level this season by by pulling him far, further and further back, um, getting him involved more. His passing, his vision for passes has always been strong, but he's really been able to showcase that. And with Hume-Min Son outside him, to be fair, you've got to hit the ball into yes. about, you've got about 20 yards leeway, he's so quick. That as long as you get the ball somewhere in his vague direction, he generally gets there first. Um, as it is, Kane tends to be able to land it on his toe on the run. Um, uh, uh, and he's and Son is one of the most underrated finishers in the game, I yeah. think, because every time he runs through on goal, you think that's it. Um, he's got that, but it's the defensive headers he makes, Kane, from set pieces, especially the goal yes. line clearances uh, and those sorts of things. You still, you know, how it is when, when. You know, there's a scramble in the box saying, oh, who was that? Who was that? Oh, who yeah. was it who cleared it off? The, you're trying to see who got the shot in. Mm. Who was it who blocked it? Oh, it was Harry Kane. What's he doing there? Yeah. You, know, you know, it's it's there. He's popping up there. And then, yeah, he's just leading by example with everything he does. You know, he's showing the defenders how to defend. He's showing the midfielders how to play a pass. And at the end of the other end, his finishing is just mm. incredible. And I think coming back to that Southgate thing, I think it was a very close toss-up between Henderson and Kane. Yeah. Uh, ahead of 2018. Uh, and I don't think Southgate was that sure. Um, but Kane, having been given the nod, went on, won the golden boot, got us to the semi-finals, and you know, and hasn't looked back. And you know, it's it's been the making of him, I think, because I think that's inspired him to believe that he can be the player that he, he works every ounce of, yeah. of his life to be. And yeah, I, I He's a standout player from from, from this generation yeah. of Englishmen, definitely. Neil, I'm not I sure think from the you can add to that eulogy to, to Harry Kane from Matt there. Well, well, I'll say that I think until this season, it has always been regarded, Harry Kane, as a traditional English number nine gets up there. And I just think that he's actually, he's a 
Matt says he's played off now. It's to the stage where you can actually play Harry Kane in a in a ten roll dropping off deep mm. in a in a, behind. You could play him behind Dominic Calvert Lewin for England. You know, in a mm. three behind the one, just because so good and the, the relationship he has with Son and mentioned that Southampton game. He him and Mourinho read the game. Kane dropped into midfield or something, and then was spraying balls for Son to go. So you mentioned about players who are coming through this season. I think Son is you know, one name that I would mention that putting him in running for one of the players of the years. And the other one I, I would say is Edward Mendy, Chelsea. That we mentioned all the money that has been spent at Chelsea in the attacking place. But I just think he's a top, top goalkeeper and he's, he's made a difference. He just, he's, he's present, he's calming presence. He just, you know, it's always, always like goalkeepers that make the job look simple, you know, and he's, he's calm. But he just did the, the important things very well. I think he's made a big difference to Chelsea. And I think we'll see that through the season as well. Yeah, they're, they're, they're the sort of player, Edwin Mendy, the, the, the likes of him, the sort of players you might challenge for personal, individual honours towards the end of this season. In the meantime, just a reminder, you can go to mirror.co.uk um, and vote for your fans' Football of the Year for 2020. Just a reminder of that shortlist, De Bruyne, Van Dijk, Henderson, Grealish, Rashford, Mane and Salah. Um, you mentioned Grealish, and he'll be one of those three English players there, Grealish, Henderson and um, Rashford. Yes, Rashford. Three of the seven on that shortlist, they're going to be key to Gareth Southgate's plans for um, Euro 2000 in 2001 the Euro finals next summer, and of course for the um, World Cup qualifying campaign, which begins next March with a mega game against San Marino at Wembley. Um, guys, it was the World Cup draw this week. England drawn uh, with some familiar opponents, familiar foes. Um, I would call them foes, but we have a good record against most of them, um, as it happens. What do you make of the draw, Matt? Um, I, I always come out with the line, Every time England get a qualifying group, you know, people refer to the group of death. This is another group of defo, isn't it? We're defo uh, group. It's, it, well, it should be, but um, I think it underlines the whole problem with the European qualifying mm. is that four of our qualifiers are going to be played against two of the six worst teams in the whole continent. Um, you know, we, we've we've got San Marino in there, we've got Andorra, uh, and, uh, you know, bar, barring seven seconds and a bad Stuart players back pass <laughs> they're, they're for, foregone conclusions um, uh, and that, that kind of is great but one of those games is in March so I don't know what Southgate's going to learn from that game in terms of Euro 2020 um, at the top end of the draw though we do have to be slightly careful about the changing face of, of European football because technically we've got the third best second pot team and the second best third pot team which uh, Hungary in particular we couldn't have if two are going to get through by the playoffs or or automatic qualifications it's that third pot you've got to watch out for to muddy the waters and actually Hungary are right up there amongst the most dangerous teams in there so right. we've got to have our wits about it and we, uh, so we can't take anything for granted but but England have been you sound like Gareth no I'm, I'm <laughs> making excuses for him but yeah. Gareth uh, if I can sound like Gareth as well uh, he will admit that there's no reason why they shouldn't get through that group very comfortably. And, you know, he's, he's not about to say there's no easy games in international football and then go and play Andorra and San Marino for, you know, four times. Um, it, 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 we should yeah. cruise through that. Um, Poland, you know, Lewandowski, all the rest of it. Yeah. Um, and, uh, yeah, but that's one player. Uh, and we're better than that. Um, yeah. The only thing is we, we do really struggle in Poland over the years. Yeah, you know, you know, there's obviously the famous Tomaszewski incident, but we've only won twice in the last, I think, eight in, in eight competitive games in history yeah. in Poland. Uh, so, you know, we might have to just True. take a deep breath after a draw over there. Yeah, we don't um, tend to we, lose, do we? We don't tend. To, yeah, we, we might not have won a few, and that's job done. You know, it is. It, Wembley's key again. Yeah. Win all our home games. We're we're in the finals. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a there is a slightly broad issue, I think, which which you know, I think is, is for another time. In you're right about those smaller teams. You know, people have a go with the Nations League and say, you know, question its its validity. Really, it's why is it worthwhile? Well, you know, I'd rather see those type of fixtures than England versus Andorra, England versus Albania, and England versus San Marino. That's with respect to these nations. You know, the fact of the matter is, you know, Gareth said, well, you know, he's aware of the pitfalls of these type of games. Well, really, there aren't any. England have played, I think. I think the stat is England played Albania, Andorra and San Marino a combination of 14 times. Won 14, scored 65, conceded two. One of which, of course, to be fair, was one of the funniest goals 
in this international history they've conceded. So I think there's a, there's a broader philosophical argument about do we really need this type of qualifying? But Neil, England, you would think there's one thing they can do, and they have done over recent years, is that they've been absolutely exceptional in qualifying. I, I, again, I, I should know this, I don't know, but the stats off the top of their head are remarkable in terms of how many qualifiers they've they've won uh, uh, over the years. I think one of the ones they've lost was a dead rubber. I think that was against Ukraine in, in, in whenever it was. Um, was it, uh, anyway, 2009 or something like that. But it, it, it's England generally make pretty easy work of qualification, don't they, for major tournaments now? Yeah, they've, they've got it. They know what they know what they're doing. And when you see that draw, mm. you, my, 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 my first thought, the biggest stories building up to Qatar 2022 are going to be stories about how season's mm. going to be work and getting ready for Qatar. I think it's going to be hopefully pretty quickly the focus. I think, I think a lot of people forget that this is going to be a World Cup played in November and December. So it's going to be... Everything's going to be a little bit out of kilter, and we still haven't worked out what's going to happen with with everything as well. And uh, I mean, the other groups. One of the things I thought interesting: Qatar are actually in Group A, yes, playing friendly with, with Republic of Ireland and um, Portugal and Serbia. That's good. That's you know, that, that I think that's going to be really interesting to to keep an eye on what that does. But I think I mean the only the only possible advantage, as you say, that playing these smaller countries, you do get to experiment and you do get yes. to play. You know, to look forward a little bit. You know, you, you you give Jack Grealish ninety minutes and tell him to run the show again, and get you know that's another experience of international mm. football for him to hope he's in in good stead. I mean, I think I do agree that the the it's the same sort of theory of the, the way the Champions League is trying to be involved that they want to see more big games in the big clubs, and that's sort of the same idea of the UEFA League of Nations that that's what people want to see. That you know, people the friendlies and even England's Andorra are, going to be, are hard sells yes. with everything else going on in the world. So that's what we're trying to get. And so, yeah, so looking forward to um, November the 21st, 2022, the first World Cup game. Yes, and <laughs> actually, Gareth, Gareth did talk about how he'd been there that time of year for the Club World Cup. Um, you know, and he's got no no fears about um, about climate or about conditions. You know, so it, it will be interesting to see. Interesting to see how it works out um, around the Premier League's um, um, fixture schedule for the twenty uh, yeah the, the twenty two twenty three season, um, and see see how that pans out. You did mention the other home nations there. Well, you mentioned Republic of Ireland um, having to play Qatar and friendlies in their group. Without going into their specific. Um, the details of their groups. I just wondered where where you see the home nation standing. I mean, obviously Wales have. I mean, the number one seeds in their group are Belgium. Clearly, that's going to be you know tough. Republic of Ireland's number one teams, I think, are Portugal and Northern Ireland are in the same group as Italy. But I just wondered, Matt, where you see at the moment the progress and the development of the other home nations, including Scotland, of course, as well. Well, well Scotland are building up their resilience first mm-hmm. of all, which which was the first thing that they needed to do. Um, and they are, I mean, my first World Cup was 82 when Scotland had some of the best British players in their team. They had an overabundance of, uh, of, of talented players at the world, that World Cup. Um, uh, and slowly and surely they're getting individuals. Unfortunately, they're all left backs. But, um, but, but there are a few better players now coming through to, to bring the rest along a bit of better organization. So th- th- that's progress in the right way. Um, Wales um, have, have had a glory spell driven by Gareth Bale. Um, you know, well, people wondered, you know, there was a kind of a, a lap over between Ryan Giggs and Gareth Bale. And, and, and it's not going to come much better than that for them in terms of individuals. Uh, and their worry is now that Bale is getting older, doesn't seem to be able to be pulling up any trees at Spurs anymore. You wonder how long he'll have that impact on an international level and who's coming up to sort of support him and take them on and keep that momentum going. And Northern Ireland have always been had the problem that, that you know, anything virtually is an overachievement. Uh, and we mustn't forget just how small a country it is and how few footballers they have yeah. to choose from. Uh, when they've got internationals like David Healy, who... But in terms of his club career, he had a very ordinary career in England, you know, and he, he's he's breaking records on international international levels. They they rely on those individuals and overachieving and as kind of a, an optimistic bubble to get whatever results they can. But but for mm. them to still to be as high in the pot they're in at the moment, it is quite a strong achievement. And and you know, for them to be reaching 
championship finals is incredible. So if they can do that again, you know it, that that's winning the world. That's winning the World Cup for them, and uh, and good luck to them. Yeah, I, I mean, I think I, I think all all the home nations are. are I don't know. I'm I'm quite optimistic, you know, about about the chance of, of all the home nations. I mean, not necessarily qualifying. Listen, they're all not going to qualify, but I, I do think they are all showing signs of development. England in particular obviously have an extremely... Andy, what I would just say, as people may not have realised, uh, this year the playoffs are semi-finals. So that's the most likely route for, for the, for the uh, other home nations to get to the championships. But the second-place teams go into yes. a semi-final, go into a yes. four-team with only one qualifying. So the playoff route's a very hard route to get to the finals, yes. so it does make it harder for it those make it harder, yes. second teams. Yeah, yeah. Well, but, but I mean, anyway, so hopefully they will, um, and we'll have more than you know one home nation making it to to Qatar twenty twenty two. When those finals do take place, in the same way um, as it, the Euros next year, there will be you know we've all been to these tournaments, and they don't they're not just about the football more so than ever. And I don't think Qatar twenty two will be just about the football. We we know that Gareth Southgate has already. Feel the questions about um, human rights issues, about other things surrounding the Red tournaments, and and, we, and and such is the nature of big football tournaments in the modern age. They they, they inevitably um, bring up more discussion, quite rightly so, and spotlight on, on things. And of course, one of the one of the things in particular that the spotlight is on is racial equality. And this week, you know, that will be the same. The Euros, the same at World Cup twenty twenty two. You know, th- this should be a flagship issue for UEFA and for FIFA. And it certainly is for F- for UEFA right now because, you know, we've had the, I mean, as far as I can see, an unprecedented situation um, on Tuesday of the Paris Saint-Germain um, and the Istanbul players walking off the pitch after the alleged um, um, racially abusive remark from the fourth official. Neil, what did you make of that that whole scenario? And, and, and is it, you know, a, a step in the right direction when you have this direct unified action from the players when they feel that um, there's something wrong has been done like that. Yeah, I think it's really fascinating that the last week we've had two big incidents with the the Millwall, which we were going to speak again, and and the Paris Saint-Germain and the Istanbul um, strike act, effectively. What struck me was in the context of watching the Anton Ferdinand documentary on BBC last mm-hmm. week. So I'm not sure if, if people haven't had the chance to watch it. it. It's a great watch. It's on the iPlayer now. And it's really opening. And the thing that struck, the biggest thing that struck me about that was Anton Ferdinand felt let down by the system. That he had tried, he felt wronged, and he had gone to the authorities to um, to try and, to try and, to act on this and he felt his complaints and his feelings weren't addressed properly and nine years later he felt let down mm. now what the situation we've got now is we think i was going to use the phrase current generation of players but nine years ago it, also, it seems like a long time ago but it wasn't players now are not prepared to accept it so we've had mm. examples of you know kevin prince Botan walking off in italy until now they've been quite limited examples <laughs> We've seen, you know, the, led by Demba Bar and the Istanbul players, and then supported by Mbappe and Neymar, the other players, have said they've seen what they judged to be wrong, and they said we're not having it. This is not going to happen, and they've taken the action themselves and forced UEFA into taking the action and taking the action, suspending the game, removing the fourth official, replaying the game with a new new set of officials, and I think that 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 is quite significant step in the sense that players have said my view of it is that there's a feeling the, the, the job the football authorities have been doing on this issue hasn't been good enough we, we you know talking back to that Ferdinand issue that they, they are saying this is the way it should be we want it we this is the way the way we want it to be handled and it's now up to the football authorities in UEFA in this case and then the FIFA and the other matches as well to, to match the feeling of the players and I would say generally feeling the feeling of the football watching public mm. to address this issue. Yeah. Matt, Neil, Neil mentioned there the um, the taking of the knee, which, which you know, we all got, I wouldn't say, you know, we all became accustomed to when we were covering games behind closed doors. And and in a way, you know, I mean, like Les Ferdinand, who sort of said in, in the end, it, it became something that he, that he thought had maybe outgrown its purpose. But in a way, its purpose has now been re-emphasised by what happened at Millwall last Saturday. 
Yeah, I think it has actually. Mm. Um, I think people are talking about it um, again uh, for for the right reasons. Um, people have tried to hijack it and turn the Black Lives Matter movement into something that it was never intended to be, certainly not by any of the players taking a knee. Um, but it's been given us an opportunity to refocus what it is all about, why people are doing it, why people are still doing it, uh, and why it carries on. Whether or not the fact that, right, we've said what we've said now, we've had a chance to say it again, let's show our support in a different way. There's an argument to be said for that because, like you say, when players continue to take the knee, you, you begin to become sort of uh, immune to it and it doesn't have the meaning that it did those first few times. Uh, and it's important that that meaning is not lost uh, and is constantly hammered home. And if it takes change to do that, that then let's do that. Um, it, it, but I think without that backdrop of the global support for that, I don't think what happened in Paris would have happened. Um, I think as well, England have got to, you know, feel proud as a nation because of what happened in Sofia. I think that again has set the, a stepping stone towards what could happen. Um, uh, and then ultimately, mm. two of the world's finest footballers, I think Neymar and Mbappe, were leaders in. It's, it's not. It's easy to walk off as a team, but when you get the solidarity, and that's what this yes. is all about, it's yeah. standing arm in arm together. When that happens. Um, then I think that's when the, the message is most powerful. What I would say, though, is I think we have now need, for the fourth official concerned, uh, and I'm a, I know John Barnes tweeted um, on this, I think we've got to allow UEFA to make a full investigation because in the middle of this is an individual who may or may not have made a racial comment that he realised. The fact is somebody felt they were being racially abused and everyone yeah. supported him, and that's important. But whether or not the intent was there, that there's an individual right at the heart of that that um, you know may be having a very difficult time because of something that was completely inadvertent and, and accidental. So I do think it's important to, to finish the whole process and show that this yeah. isn't just emotion and whatever. You know, we want justice to be done for everybody. Um, and so I think that process has to be allowed to happen and, and then carry forward from there. Yeah, and, and I, think, I think you're right, Matt. I think that process has to be as transparent, mm. you know, for, for an issue that is so, so crucial for an issue that is so, you know, potentially damaging to, you know, um, to everyone really, it, I, th I think that has to be transparent. And I think you're also right in what you say about the players unifying. They believe, whether they're right or not, they believe um, that was an incident mm. of, 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 of racial um, discrimination and they, and they walked off as a, as a unified unit. And that, and that I think sets a, it's an important staging post. So when that happens next time, if it's from someone from the crowd, for example, or an opposition player, then they do it all together. It's like that game you mentioned in Sofia, you know, had the, you know, they, they were very torn then, I think, at the time England had both teams just walked off, then UEFA wouldn't have been able to do um, anything about it. I think I, th I think you're right. I think that's important. And um, and again, going back to my original point, I do think that and what happened in Millwall has re-emphasised the significance um, um of of taking the knee before the game and and if players I just think it should be the freedom of the players they feel that they want to do that and show their support um, for whatever particular fight they want against inequality then they should be allowed to do it of course we this only came about because fans are now allowed back into the stadiums I just want to go into that for a moment about um, I don't know whether you guys have been to games with fans as, as yet mm, have you guys yeah, covered yeah. a game with fans Neil. Yeah, I've got a couple to the, the Southampton-Brighton game on Monday night. I, th I think the biggest thing you notice is when the players first run out, the noise generated yes. from both nights is, is, is terrific. And uh, and then the, 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 the fans have got to get used to saying, not seeing the VAR, appreciate they know no more what's going on. They're watching on TV at home, of course. That's a reminder when you when you are back in the stadium. But um, yeah, I think in Brentford last night, I was, I was there for, for Derby. It's, it's a small set, but I do think that the, the noise generated by though yeah. even the smaller, relatively small amount, two thousand, it does make a difference. It's a welcome difference. It's a small step, but it's it's a it's a good step. Yeah. What I'm interested in, Matt, is, is that I I read some quotes um, from a Wolves player. Now I can't. It's the name has slipped my mind. Um, I've been oh I don't I don't but anyway. There's a Wolves player. Who said after that game when they were when they were soundly beaten at Anfield, 
um, in, uh, in with the first game that the Liverpool welcomed 2,000 fans back. And he said he was clearly taken aback by how much influence those two 2,000 fans believe they could exert. You know, and you saw the pictures of Klopp as usual, sort of them, um, stuff in front of the cop. Um, and, he, and the Wolves, I think, player was, was, was clearly implying that, that, that you know, they, they had, these 2,000 fans, a big impact. And that, the, a few days earlier, when um, it was, um, I think, Steve Bruce and, and who else who, who, who complained that, well, not didn't complain, but hinted that it, it's perhaps a little bit unfair. I think it was Bielsa, wasn't it? Who, um, Bielsa, who, who complained it might have been unfair that some teams would have 2,000 fans back in and obviously those in Tier 3 would have no fans back in. I remember at the time I wrote about it, sort of basically much laughing this out of court, like, you know, and saying, well, if, you know, if, if 2,000 fans are going to intimidate you, you know, I mean, you shouldn't be in the league, etc. However, when I read these quotes from the, from the Wolves player, um, I thought to myself, you know what, you know, maybe these managers have a point. Is it fair that, that some teams can have 2,000 fans cheering them on? And other teams can't. Uh, no, but we're back to classic Jose again. He was that was point was put to him, and um, the uh, we've got a walkout from Neil's cat. There. <laughs> um, Fair enough. Um, yeah. um, <laughs> feeding time for the cat. Yes. Jose was fine. He was asked about that, uh, uh, and basically his response was, "You know, yeah, yeah, perhaps it's unfair, but but get a grip." Think about the circumstances we're in. Who are we doing it for? We want fans to be watching football. Yeah, it's probably not, it's probably not fair that Chelsea can spend two hundred and fifty million pounds in the summer, <laughs> uh, and Leeds can't. You know, there's lots of injustices in football, uh, and uh, the fact that uh, you know, again, Jose was did it far better and far more poisonously, but uh, but, but but basically said, come on, you know, this there's been bigger problems in the world at the moment. <laughs> he's great when he's winning, isn't he, man? Oh, absolutely. That he's brilliant when player. he's winning. Yeah. I mean, this is the guy that if he's losing, is railing against every single absolutely. injustice in the yeah. book. That's you what know, makes it funnier, though. He'd have a go at just... ball boys. He'd have a go at anyone. Yeah. Ball boys. He, I mean, he'd he yeah. have a go at anyone if he's not. And now absolutely. he's like, suddenly missed their sort of altruism, isn't he? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah okay. absolutely. The bigger thing is going on in the world than me. I'm not much me, but uh, exactly. Yeah. But Neil, yeah, I'm just wondering what your view is. It does, you know... It does, no, it does lift the fans... It was it was brought home, and I think this is perhaps something they need to look at if it's going to go on for the season. Is in an individual match there was the classic chart. I don't know if it's happened elsewhere. I'm sure it has because fans are fans everywhere. But but the um, it was the Spurs fans uh, in the game against uh, who did they play like uh, against? Gosh, my mind. Especially the weekend, Arsenal. Arsenal, of course. Yeah, North London derby. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Singing to the Arsenal fans, your support is. Yeah, and obviously they they haven't got any tickets, and perhaps that's something that needs to be looked at. You know, <laughs> well, getting away fans getting in, away fans, some way. It's complicated enough as it is, but as we get used to the processes, perhaps have some segregated, socially distanced away fans. Um, that that's just one thing. But I suddenly realised the noise that I've been missing that isn't on any of these FIFA tracks and whatever that they use, and it was when uh, Xhaka played a pass. Saka completely misread it and he went out of touch and it was that old way that ironic cheer it's not on any of the soundtracks that you hear off the telly when they <laughs> create the sound effects but that ironic cheer uh, and I thought that's the noise that's been missing from football all this basically taking the pee out of the away team for, for a, a, a massive blunder um, but but undoubtedly it just feels a yeah. different game again yeah I, I, I agree I mean I was I was at the London Stadium. It was my experience of the fans going back, you know, and, and you think, well, 2,000 fans inside the London Stadium. You think, is that really going to make a difference? You know, 50,000, 60,000 doesn't make that much of a difference normally. Will 2,000 make a difference, you know, in that cavernous dome? And it did. I mean, it really did. Trevor Brooking came onto the pitch before the game and sort of, you know, spoke in front of the fans and it made a big difference. I mean, to be fair, it didn't make a huge amount of difference to, um, to the outcome um, of the game. But Neil... It would be good, wouldn't it, if if more fans, you know, Gareth Southgate again um, said, listen, he hopes that come March more fans will be allowed in and, and Wembley might be partly um, occupied by fans for those World Cup qualifiers. I mean, what I would say is I'm reading news stories saying London might go back into Tier 3. So I guess we can't get ahead of ourselves, can we, in, in welcoming, you know, big, big crowds back to football games. Correct. I think we're looking at issues here that beyond football, that how's this yeah. going to be done? I mean, 
once the vaccine get, gets rolled out, are we going to say you need to have you, you know, get your vaccine certificate to be able to buy tickets in a stadium, go to concerts or get on flights and all these things? I think there are these, all these huge issues that have to be addressed. And I, I just think, that, as you mentioned about London, we, you know, the, the rates are going up uh in a lot of the boroughs so we, we by the yeah. next couple of months we, you know we that that could end next week Potent, potentially on the 16th london could go into tier three and that and that mm. would be you no know, more you know, we're talking about the next month or two so yes. i think we i think we just appreciate that we've got it at the moment I, and i do feel desperately sorry for the the, the fans that are watching mm. it in in tier three for so you know out of anyone's control the way things are unfortunately that's just the situation that we're in and uh yeah, I just think there, there will be a lot of serious discussions and I'm very interested to hear mm. what fan groups and clubs think about, you know, basically telling people if you haven't got a vaccine, you can't come into the stadium from at the end mm. of this season or next season as well. I think this is, and I think this is going to be a sort of, of a culture war, a discussion that's going to be go through that throughout the whole of society and, and, and football is just going to be effectively a, a small part of that. Yeah. Yeah, well, listen, I think I think we all agree that, that um, we probably... We all said it, and everyone in football said it, how football was nothing without fans. And we all said during it how much we miss fans, but we probably didn't know how much until these last few days when we've all been to games when even having just 2,000 fans in there has seemed, you know, just, just brilliant. And bear in mind, local clubs as well. Think how it feels there. My, my, my The club just down the road from me here is Crew Alexandra, and they'll have 2,000 fans in this weekend, you know, and, and the average crowd might be only four or 5,000. So you, you're sort of half full. And imagine the lift that'll give to them. So... Let's hope, touch wood, that, that, that we do keep making progress and get more fans back in. Guys, I want to finish on um, on, on, on sad news, but um, but also just on a, a look back and a happy note. We, 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 we said farewell to a world great um, recently in Diego Maradona. And sadly, another another figure from, from that sort of era, I think he was a bit older than Diego, um, four years older, I think, um, passed away overnight. And that was Paolo Rossi. And you know what? It just it just got me thinking. You know, um, I was at an age then where you know my interest in football really was at its absolute. You know, just, taken off through through the roof. I was playing a lot, watching a lot, and Paolo Rossi involved. I just wanted to, in, in one of the greatest games that, that I, I remember: Italy three, Brazil two, um, in the in the World Cup of eighty two. I just remember, would like to know, guys, what what your memories are. I mean, not necessarily of him, but of that era, because I keep reading everywhere how much the game has, how much the game has got better and faster, more skillful, and you know we're holding these great club sides up now as as having moved there on um, a step or two. But I'm looking at that those games from that era of '82, typified by Italy three, Brazil two, in that in that I think it was the second group stage of of um, um, in Barcelona, wasn't it, I think. And I'm thinking, you know what? Games don't get much better than that. I mean, I don't know what your guys' memories of those times are or how you think the game has progressed or not progressed. Well, um, I, I, I'm an absolute uh, yeah, mere ankle biter compared to yourself. Yes, Andy. you are, to, to be fair. So, yes. um, so I, I was nine for that. But that was my yes. World Cup in terms of the first one when I knew what a World Cup was, when I'd rush home from school and, and watch it. And the memories still burn as brightly of that World Cup as they do any of the ones since. Um, you know, I, I'd swallowed it all up. Um, it was, uh, in that game, I think, uh, yeah. that was an afternoon game, wasn't it? So I was allowed to, I didn't have to go to bed and miss the end of that one. Um, I still remember my dad sending me home with uh, France cruising their way to the World Cup final in the semis and said, well, come on, this game's over. We'll, we'll leave it there, son. It's off to bed and missing the three all and the penalties. But, uh, but that 82... Um, that 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 Brazil Italy game. What I would say when you play back is played at a very Brazilian pace. Um, it was hot compared to the modern game. It was hot, but even now you it see Barcelona in the middle of summer, mate. Yeah, no, fair enough. But you see warm games played by Premier League teams and modern teams, <laughs> and the athleticism. It has to be said, it is a whole quantum league beyond that now. Uh, but some of the skills uh, and the vision and uh, some of the things they would they were trying to do with mm. the ball. It was just—it's a joy to watch, and just, just the exuberance of the play that that was there. It wasn't all about tracking back and whatever. Yes. It was about showing some remarkable individual skills, hitting some ludicrously long-range shots with curl and dip and everything else um, uh, that that actually ended up being 
world-beating shots throughout that World Cup. Uh, and that game probably exemplified yeah. it all with the, the excitement. Um, uh, and I remember, yeah, definitely we were all Paolo Rossi in the playground for, for yes. a week or so because none of us had heard of him because we didn't watch international football before that. And that, But for, for sort of four weeks, he was the man. Neil? Yeah, I think it's also in the context of losing Maradona yeah. last week. Of that, you know, the, 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 what, what he was able to perform, you know, to show that football wasn't didn't start in 1992. And for for me, the um, that 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 Italy Brazil game is one of my favourite games of all yeah. time. I remember watching just the contrast of styles. That that Brazil team often regarded as the best team to never win the World Cup. Absolutely superb, flowing samba football. But there's more than one way to win a football match, and Italy set up this very pragmatic style. And had a red hot striker, and the, the contrast of the styles and the way it was done. Just the, the, for me, that's one of the many great yeah. appeals of football. And just the, the reaction in Italy this morning, just looking through social media, yeah. the paper, you know, a real hero of died. Is you know, you know, yeah. every you know, Italy won it again in two thousand six. That eighty two team had a had a special resonance with the country after what the, the country had been through every yeah. time. And so, yeah, I, I just uh, for me, the 82 World Cup is uh, England scoring after, you know, in the first game against oh. France after a few seconds. Just uh, it's a real, a real happy memories for me because, uh, you know, the, yeah. the time. And then just, as we were recalling about 86 and everything and what Maradona did then, I do. I just think World Cups are special when you look back in your you think where when you look back and where you were in your life, which yeah. games you remember, where you were watching them with you, the real sort of mark hosts in your life. And I think it's, and I really enjoy, so don't think about those games. When you think about it, it just brings back really nice memories and um, for all the World Cups. Yeah, no, I, I, absolutely. And, and, and Matt, even if you're an ankle biter, like your good self, mate, you can still go back and look at, at recordings of, of that World Cup. And that game, I mean, that game, uh, you know, I mean, the Rossi hat-trick and the, the goals from, from Socrates and Falcao, I mean, it, it was just, a very special game, a very special tournament, you know, and, and Rossi was clearly a very special um, striker. And it's just good to look back to that era and, and not be always obsessed with, with, you know, what's happening in the very, very modern game. But but we are, gladly, and uh, we will be again next week um, if you could join us then. In the meantime, um, I hope you've enjoyed um, the podcast. You can catch it up from your normal, um, whatever you, you get your podcast. Matt, Neil, thank you very much. And we'll speak next week. Have a nice weekend, everyone.